steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amidst fiery beasts, the children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Thank you for bearing with us this morning as we've had a couple of uh, mishaps. We call them the church gremlins around Christ Church, and you never know exactly when they're going to show up. But typically on, uh, on a Sunday like J July 1st is when they decide to make their appearance. So, uh, One other gremlin that has happened is that the reading has switched. That's more due to the pastor than a gremlin. But uh, we are actually two chapters in front of this. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 21. We are reading verse 10 through 1 Samuel 22, verse 5. Hear God's word. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them and they were with him, about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah, of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. We've got to redo that. Um, while our microphones were not working, you don't need one. You have multiple voices working on your behalf, and we've heard the word of God, and when we're addressed by God, we express our appreciation and gratitude to him. So this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, 
We give thanks and we hear your word eagerly. It is the source of life. It directs us and guides us. And Lord, we ask that you would speak this morning because your servants are here listening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Always the week before, as we're preparing for summer vacation, one of my tasks is to collect the books that I would desire to read on the weeks that uh, the Colson family is away. Typically, it's an odd mix, and I don't like to necessarily advertise. Some of the books I tend to quote and recommend to people are disturbing to others, and so I'm not going to publicly endorse the list this week. One person came up to me the other week and said, why do you like that book so much? That's a common occurrence. Flannery O'Connor and all these type things tend to be somewhat difficult to digest. But normally the summer reading list isn't just esoteric things. They aren't just classic novels. There's also normally just a bit of theology, and then, of course, like a few spy thrillers. That normally just dials it in for the soul. It's very helpful. But as I was scanning the shelf, looking at the books that I was going to take with me, one that my eye was drawn to was Steinbeck's epic, The Grapes of Wrath. You've heard me discuss this book before. It is one of my favorite novels. But as I looked and considered and thought about rereading it this summer, I just thought to myself, no. And then I said, well, why? Why does that immediate answer, no, come to your mind right now? And it's simply one thing. The book is full of so much adversity. It is a heavy book that if you're in a down season of life, I would not recommend it to you. That it is a heavy book about the adversity the saga of the Joad family is they travel from Oklahoma and go to California and they're in search of food, they're in search of a home, they're in search of trying to provide for their whole family system, looking for work. Along the way, they face many obstacles. There's drought and there's flood. There is near starvation. And then the family witnesses the death of the matriarch and then also the miscarriage of a child. There was adversity, circumstantial, situational adversity. But this wasn't the only thing that they found adverse. It wasn't just their circumstances. But rather, there was also the evil sheriff. There were the greedy bankers that had evicted them. There was the drunken uncle who would steal the money. There was the degenerate revival preacher who brought disrepute to Christianity. And then there was the unfaithful husband who left his pregnant wife. In other words, they didn't only face adverse circumstances, they also encountered adversaries. There were situations and there were also relationships. And part of the power of the novel is it speaks so much to real life, the life that you live and the life that I live because we too live in the midst of adversity, where we face adverse circumstances, because we're participants in a fallen and broken world where everything that happens is not good and right. And we also live in a broken world where relationships are fractured and human beings struggle with one another, and we have those who we would consider to be opponents. There is relational disharmony. And that we experience adversity in those two forms, circumstantially and relationally. And as we come to Psalm 57 this morning, a prayer of David, 
written most likely prior to his kingship, prior to having taken his throne. And here he is in the midst of adversity, on the run from Saul, distrusted by everyone, without his father and without his mother. He is all alone, and he turns to God as a refuge. He seeks for God to be a rock for him in the middle of his crisis. And so it's crucial for us this morning to ask and answer this question. What is the biggest challenge that we actually face in the middle of adversity? It may sound like really a silly question. Many people's answer will be the obvious one, that the biggest challenge we face in the midst of adversity is no doubt the circumstances that are adverse or our adversary. That's the most natural answer to the question. But what if that is not precisely the biggest challenge you face? What if in the middle of adversity, the biggest challenge is not something actually external? What if the biggest challenge that you face in the middle of adversity is something internal? A struggle that we actually have in our relationship with God. And I suggest to you that Psalm 57 takes us in this direction because what we find is an affirmation of David's faith. And we've seen that David in other Psalms is struggling to believe that he receives the promises of God. He trusts them, but yet he also knows in his experience and his existential receipt of those promises that it's hard and it's difficult to always believe. Because he finds himself in the middle of adversity, in the middle of difficulty, and in the middle of that difficulty, God calls on him to believe that he's going to make good on every word that he's spoken. And so David summons himself to the truth of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Follow with me where he does this two times. First in verse 3. He will descend from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And when David uses this word, steadfast love and faithfulness, this just simply refers to the fact that God in his character and God in his covenant is unswerving, that he's good to do what he has said he is going to do. And so David is recalling that truth. And then once again in verse 10 at the close of the psalm, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Once again, visiting the same language, calling on God, announcing that God is steadfast and that God is faithful. And friends, what is so important for us in the midst of adversity is that all these truths be affirmed because it is our adverse circumstances that challenge our belief in these truths. You see, we have this subtle suspicion that lives inside of our hearts that God is somewhat like us. Because we know ourselves. We know that we run hot, then we run cold. We know that we say yes, then we say no. We know that we're true, but then we're false. And when we encounter adverse circumstances, our subtle suspicion is that God may be like that too. Now, you will not find that written in any formal theology that you could write for yourself. You would never want to pin those words. But when it comes to our relationship with God, this is the very subtle dynamic that's going on all the time, that God is calling on us 
to find him to be steadfast and faithful, that he will make good on what he has said. And yet we struggle to believe it. Because when adversity confronts us, it threatens us. And we struggle to trust God. The unknown is out in front of us. And we really are asking the question, what is God going to do in the midst of my circumstances? David undoubtedly was in that type of uncertainty, just as we read from chapter 21 and 22. David had received a promise from God that he would be the king of Israel, that he would lead the nation in a time of renewal. And yet he was designated that king, but there was another who was on the throne, Saul. And Saul hated David. And Saul pursued David out into the wilderness, and he was in hiding. David has to turn his family over to multiple kings for protection. And then David realizes that he himself is in trouble, and so he has to pretend to be a madman. That's the context from which this prayer arises. A man who was pressed. One who understood tension. One who understood adversity. And he is struggling to believe He has received the promise from God, and then he looks at his situation and his circumstances, and these two don't match up. That's also the context that we live in. And so God calls us to live by faith, to trust him, that he will make good on his word, that he will do so in the way that is in keeping with his purposes and his promises. And it may be something that we don't exactly expect, His ways are unknown to us, but we're called to believe and to trust. And so David, in his prayer, he is bolstering his faith. He is announcing that God is steadfast, that God is faithful, and he's ministering to his own doubtful and disconcerted soul. Friends, this is the biggest challenge we face in the midst of all adversity. That the largest opponent that you really have is your unbelief. And we have to counter that with the truth and the promises of God. Once we recognize that the biggest challenge lies within, we have to then ask the question, what exactly are we to do then? What does it look like when we can take ownership for in the midst of adversity that we are encountering our own unbelief that God may forsake us, that that's what we're really encountering? What exactly are we to do? And Psalm 57 is really going to contend that there's one simple reflex, that what we're to do in the middle of that adversity is that we're to throw ourselves on God's mercy. Follow with me in verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. The verse is repetitive. It's repetitive in two things, crying out to God for mercy and also stating that God is a refuge. And friends, when the Psalms are repetitive, it's for one simple reason, that a truth is being driven home. That we, in the midst of any adversity, are to throw ourselves on the mercies of God, and we're to seek him as a refuge. And in throwing ourselves on God's mercy, there are about four things, at least, that we see happening 
in this particular psalm. We'll do each of these briefly. But the first thing that happens as we throw ourselves on the mercy of God is that we acknowledge our adoption that is by grace. If you follow in the second half of verse 1, David mentions the shadow of God's wings where he will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. This is Old Testament imagery, and it's rich and full and vivid, and it's important for us to understand where it comes from because it comes from the tabernacle and the temple. This is how it's used throughout the Old Testament, but it's the Ark of the Covenant. And around the Ark of the Covenant, there were these winged angels, and those wings and angels surrounded the mercy seat of God. And it was representative of the sinner who comes to God, finds refuge beneath the wings of the angels before the mercy seat. And so when David cries out for God to be merciful to him and that he finds refuge in the shadow of God's wings, in the midst of all of his adversity, David is recognizing that the God that he prays to, that he doesn't deserve to be there, that he doesn't deserve this privilege, and that he is there by grace, that he has been adopted and brought into God's family and given the right as a son of God to call out to God on his behalf. And friends, in the midst of adversity, this is what we need. Because in adversity, we sin. And sometimes we're also righteous. We can be such a mixed bag. We're, we're in the middle of hard circumstances. Several years ago, I sat down with one of my mentors, and I was in the middle of a difficult church circumstance, and I was explaining it to him and said, well, I feel like I'm on the right path, and, and that this is what God would have me to do, that he's called me to this work. But yet I also know that I've messed up here and here and here, and I've not gotten it right. And my failures are actually paralyzing me a little bit because I feel the guilt and weight of them. And yet, I feel like I'm also going in the right direction. And I asked him, I said, Josiah, can you please explain this to me? How am I supposed to handle this? Where I know that I've had failures, but yet I also believe that I'm serving God. And he said to me, Chuck, in my years with Jack Miller, and Jack Miller was the founder of World Harvest Missions. Many of you may be familiar with him. He said, one of the things that I learned from Jack is that Jack was very aware that he was a sinner. And the thing that was so freeing about Jack was that Jack, he never allowed his sins to paralyze him. That he felt free to cast himself on the mercy of God, knowing that he sinned and that he failed. And he went through much adversity and there were people who didn't agree with him and people didn't like Jack's ministry. But what Jack did is he confessed his sins to God and then he went boldly and got in the batter's box and took his best cut, trusting that God would still use him. And friends, this is what's so important for us in the middle of adversity, that our adversity not paralyze us, that it not somehow shackle us and handcuff us and uh, cause us to be frozen, but rather that we acknowledge our adoption by grace, that we cast ourselves on the mercy of God, that we know that we're adopted and brought into the family, and that God, despite all of our sins, can still use us and work through us. And so we acknowledge that we're not worthy to be there. Now, the second piece to this, as we cast ourselves on God's mercy, we also voice our complaint. 
You see, it doesn't mean that when we acknowledge that we're sinful, that we just say, well, we deserve what we get, that our circumstances are those of our own making. No, look in verse 4. David says, my soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. David puts vivid language to everything that's going on around him. That their tongues are like sharp swords. And so there was nothing physical necessarily going on at this time, but there were lies, there were accusations, there was deceit. There was malicious gossip, whatever it may be that was happening here to David. And he gives voice to the complaint, and he brings that in front of God. And friends, the important thing for us to affirm is that those concerns that you carry in your heart in the middle of all of your adversity, you can bring those to God. They are not insufficient. They are not disqualified. Is that we open our heart, we pour out those things to God. We make them known to him. And this is what we receive permission to do. In the midst of all of our difficult circumstances, in the midst of all of our broken relationships, all the adversity that we can face, that we can voice these complaints to God. The third piece of this, casting ourselves on the mercy of God, is that we ask God to act. You'll see that there's a refrain in the psalm in verses 5 and verse 11. It's repeated twice, once again for emphasis. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And this is after voicing his complaint. David then comes to this supplication, to this petition that God would manifest his glory in his world. And you see, there is a confidence in David that the world does belong to God, that God is its king, and he's the ruler and the just one and the gracious one, and he is the one who's able to act. And so, yes, David will call out on God to do certain things, but ultimately his prayer surrenders itself to the glory of God and the way of God in accomplishing that glory. David understands and acknowledges that. And so he submits himself here, calling out to God to exalt himself and to let God's glory fill the entire earth to cover it, even as the waters cover the sea. It's powerful imagery. And he's asking God to close the gap between what the promise is and what our experience so often is. That David had been promised to be king, and here he was living in a cave. And he's calling on God to manifest his glory and to make good on what he said. Brothers and sisters, you are free to pray that way because you have been adopted by grace and brought into the family. And these promises have been given to you. They are for you. And they are for you to then exercise those promises in faith. And the way we exercise those promises is that we come to God in prayer. And we make petitions like this. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. That's the petitions that we're to make. In the middle of all the adversity, in the middle of all the difficulty of our lives that we experience is holding fast to the good promises of God, believing that he's faithful and keeps them. And the final piece to this, as we throw ourselves on God's mercy, is that we're to do so expectantly. 
You notice a strange series of verses towards the end of the psalm. In verse 7, David says, My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. And then he says, I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory, which could be translated, awake uh, my whole being. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. And many people ask, what exactly is happening here? There's important context to this, that in the ancient Near Eastern world, it was at dawn that the king or the judge would sit in the city gates and distribute justice. And so dawn was associated with the idea of the distribution of justice, the exercise of righteousness. And so that was how the human court worked. And David picks up that metaphor, and then he applies it to his relationship with God. He's asked God to glorify his name. And he says, I'm therefore going to rise at the dawn. And I'm going to sing the praise of God in expectation that he will administer justice, that he will manifest his glory. And so David has an expectancy to his prayer. He has an expectancy that God will fulfill what he has said. And friends, he can't control that, and he can't write the script exactly how God is going to answer his prayer. But he does believe that God will make good on his word. That God will fulfill every promise that he's given to him. And that's what's true for you as well. Because you and I are these adopted sons and daughters, grafted in by the grace of God that's freely ours in Jesus, because we sit beneath the mercy seat, under the cover and protection, because God is our refuge, that we are fully his, we can come to him expectantly. We can voice our complaint. We can ask him to act, to manifest his glory. And that's the privilege of those who've been bought and been rescued out of their sins. And it belongs to them and to them alone. And so we cry out to God because we know he's gracious. And we know that when God speaks a word of promise to us, that he doesn't forsake it. You see, he's not hot than cold. He's not true and untrue. He's not true and false. He's not yes and then no. But this God who speaks his yes to you, that yes has been spoken through Jesus Christ. And so that yes is forever yours. And your circumstances in between the times as we mate for the final manifestation of God's glory, your circumstances will not always match up with the promise. And God invites you to come to him in the middle of all of that tension and find him to be a refuge. That you come with your complaint. That you come in expectation. That you come asking him to act. That's what it means. In the middle of all life's adversity, all the places that you go, all the things that you see, that you deal with God on this very profound but simple layer. That this is the biggest challenge we face in adversity. We're tempted to turn it outside and to say that that thing out there or that person, that thing that happened is the challenge. But look inward and deal with God. Deal with the unbelief that resides in your heart. 
And that's the way of facing the challenges of adversity. Let's ask him for help. Father, we acknowledge that our lives are full of adverse things and so many things that we don't always know how to handle. We don't know how to address them. And yet beneath all of that adversity, there's unbelief. We struggle to trust you. Bolster our faith, build it up, that we know that your steadfast love and mercy belong to us in Jesus and that nothing can shake that. And Lord, teach us what it means to pour out our hearts and our complaints to you, to pray, asking that you act, and to do so with confidence because we're adopted sons and daughters. Help us where we're weak. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.